and a pod. If you're new here, hi, this is Hepsi Xavier and I'm a third year medical student. Welcome to Endopod's revision series. Each episode will cover revision material for those preparing for exams or even just for those who are interested in learning the basics of endocrinology. In this episode, we are going to be looking at the pathophysiology of diabetes. So we'll be covering the mechanisms behind diabetes. First, let's do an overview of diabetes. Diabetes is an umbrella term for the inability to control blood glucose levels. The average blood glucose concentration is 5 millimoles per litre, and anything above or below a tight range can cause a lot of physiological issues within the body. Diabetes can be further split into type 1, type 2, maturity onset diabetes of the young, gestational diabetes, latent autoimmune diabetes of adulthood, and more. For the purposes of this podcast, we'll be focusing on type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes occurs due to insulin insufficiency. There is an autoimmune attack on the pancreatic beta cells which normally produce insulin. Therefore, insulin fails to be produced when there are high blood glucose levels. It tends to be a disease of the younger population, and the mainstay treatment is insulin replacement. In addition to this, daily blood sugar testing and planning daily activities according to glucose levels is crucial in the management. Type 2 diabetes occurs due to insulin resistance. The pancreas produces insulin, but it is essentially ineffective due to many factors including diet and obesity. Type 2 diabetes is a very common condition and 90% of those with diabetes in the UK have type 2. There are several medications type 2 diabetics can take as well as insulin. They can also effectively manage their condition by reducing risk factors such as obesity, smoking, diet and more. They also need to have their feet and eyes checked regularly for complications such as diabetic neuropathy and retinopathy. Now that we have covered diabetes in general, let's focus on type 1 diabetes and the basis behind it. The etiology is not entirely known, but we do know it is an autoimmune destruction against beta cells of the pancreas. Normally beta cells in the islets of Langerhans will detect high blood glucose levels and secrete insulin. It is thought that there may be a genetic element to it. Many human leukocyte antigen genes such as HLA-DQA1, HLA-DQB1 and HLA-DRB1 These HLA molecules normally help T-cells recognise self versus non-self. If mutated, they can cause an autoimmune attack on the pancreas. Due to these gene variants, autoantibodies are produced against beta cells and there is eventually lymphocyte infiltration of islets. There is scarring of islets and therefore little to no insulin produced. There are four different autoantibodies that have been found to cause destruction of islets. Anti-GAD65, islet cell antibodies, insulin antibodies and IA2A antibodies which work against tyrosine phosphatase. So genes are one factor, but what about environmental triggers? There seems to be a a strong association between viral infections and type 1 diabetes, diabetes, especially enteroviruses. This process is thought to occur due to molecular mimicry. Simply put, it is thought that molecules on the surface of viruses mimic molecules on the outside of B cells, thereby precipitating an immune attack. 
However, this is just a theory and more research is required. To sum up the pathophysiology of type 1 diabetes, we have several genetic mutations along with environmental factors such as biomolecular mimicry, and all of this eventually leads to the destruction of beta cells, leading to low insulin levels. All of this means that there is hyperglycemia, which can be controlled by administering exogenous insulin. What about type 2 diabetes? Again, the etiology is not entirely known, but it is a combination of insulin resistance and an inability to secrete very high levels of insulin. The main environmental factor involved in type 2 diabetes is expanded upper body visceral fat, also known as central obesity, which is getting more common these days. It is generally due to increased food intake and a lack of exercise, a loss in the balance if you like. So how does fat excess lead to type 2 diabetes? Well, excess visceral fat results in increased free fatty acids in the blood, mainly due to adipocytes that are stressed and release these fatty acids. As a consequence of this of increased fat, free fatty acids, there is decreased insulin receptor sensitivity. The reasons behind this aren't fully known. Now we have insulin receptors that do not work efficiently, so only some glucose can enter insulin-dependent tissues and we have a state of hyperglycemia. The body's natural response to this is to produce more insulin to compensate for the peripheral resistance. It's important to remember that the person isn't diabetic yet. They do have insulin resistance but will produce high levels of insulin to compensate for it. The substantially high levels of insulin can be continually produced by the pancreas no diabetes will occur. However, this is where genetics come in. There are many genes which control the ability of the pancreas to produce high levels of insulin. Certain gene variants may promote only low levels of insulin production. If an individual only has a few of these gene variants, they can se still secrete lots of insulin to compensate for insulin resistance. However, if an individual has many gene variants, they fail to produce large amounts of insulin, and this leads to type 2 diabetes. Insulin secretion doesn't increase enough does not increase enough to counteract insulin resistance caused by central adiposity. So far, we have looked at the pathophysiology of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Let's finally have a look at how diabetic complications come about. Nowadays, well-controlled diabetes has very good prognosis with little complications. However, complications can arise from prolonged poor glycemic control. Complications can either be microvascular, which affects arterioles and capillaries, or macrovascular, which affects big arteries. In terms of macrovascular complications, the main issue is that diabetes mellitus can accelerate atherosclerosis, which can lead to coronary heart disease, myocardial infarction, and strokes. How is this atherosclerosis propagated though? There are many mechanisms, but we'll focus on one in this episode. Normally, cholesterol attaches to low-density lipoprotein, also known as LDL, but glucose has a higher affinity and attaches more readily. Glucose molecules stop LDL from binding to its receptor and liver cells tightly, so LDL ends up accumulating in the blood, leading to a state of hyperlipidemia. Because of this, more LDL gets deposited in the lining of arteries, leading to the progression of atherosclerosis. Moving on to microvascular complications, let's look at how arterioles are affected by poor glycemic control. The normal physiological function of arterioles is to dampen down pressure variations. They act like taps that can redirect blood flow to various organs and ensure that blood is at a low enough pressure when it reaches capillaries. There are two mechanisms by which, diabeti by which diabetes can affect these vessels. 
The lumen of arterioles is lined by endothelial cells, which produce a basal lamina and they sit on top of this lamina. Between the basal lamina and the endothelial cells, there is potential space and many molecules flux in and out of the subendothelial space, including albumin, collagen and other plasma proteins. The first step involves glycosylation, which is when prolonged high levels of glucose in the blood lead to irreversible covalent bonds being formed with proteins such as collagen. These are called advanced glycosylation end products. Collagen forms a normal basal lamina. As I said before, plasma proteins like albumin can flux in and out of subendothelial space. Normal collagen does not bind albumin, but glycosylated collagen does bind albumin. So albumin, so albumin is not able to flux back into the lumen and ends up essentially trapped in the potential space. Due to this, there is the buildup of plasma proteins and connective tissue in this potential space, and eventually the basal lamina also thickens. This process occurs throughout the body and it leads to poor blood flow and therefore ischemia. The second step involves cross-linking of proteins. Normal basal lamina proteins do not cross-link and can be removed easily. However, due to glycosylation of proteins, they bind to their neighbouring proteins and form rigid cross-links. These again lead to the trapping of proteins in the arteriolar walls even if there is a return to normal glycemia. So due to an accumulation of trapped plasma proteins and the cross-linking of basal lamina proteins, there is damage to arterioles. This is especially problematic in blood supply to kidneys, the peripheries, eyes and in the arterial supplying nerves, leading to diabetic nephropathy, diabetic foot, retinopathy and neuropathy. In diabetics, the relative risk of amputation is 40 times higher, end-stage renal disease is 25 times higher, and blindness is 20 times higher than a non-diabetic. And to quickly touch on how capillaries are affected by diabetes, there is an increased connective tissue surrounding capillaries, which again leads to diminished blood supply. This is because diffusion cannot occur as effectively, and tissues fail to receive adequate oxygen and nutrients. episode we've looked at the basis behind type 1 and type 2 diabetes as well as their complications arising from poor glycemic control. There's still a lot more scope for research in this area since we still don't fully know a lot of the mechanisms and how they occur. Thanks for tuning in and I hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Endopod. Please remember to follow us on our Aberdeen University Endocrinology Society Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages. Like and share the podcast with all your friends and colleagues and of course I always welcome any feedback. Stay safe and happy. This is Hepsi Xavier signing off.